Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Those are verses 5 to 9 of Psalm 49, which along with Psalm 53 are the psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, July the 20th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. I'd like to wish my son Pelham a happy birthday today. Uh, He's out in Seattle, and so um, it was 32 years ago today that uh, Suzanne gave birth to, to him, and it was a blessed time and a blessed event. So uh, thankful for that. Very, very thankful for Pelham and for all that he has meant to us and how much uh, we love him. So continuing with the uh, podcast today, we're going to continue in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, still in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verses 57 to 68, and then in Romans 14, verses 13 to 23. So if you remember yesterday, what we had was the defeat of A.E., uh, by the people of Israel by the, because they had tricked them by ambushing them from behind while Joshua and some of the men um, drew out the men of Ai and then from behind the ambush came and they burned the city to the ground. So now, following that, we've got at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it's written in the book of the law of Moses, quote, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. So, in other words, what, what he's doing, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are the places in Deuteronomy, in the last few chapters of Deuteronomy, where Moses um, taught the people by having one group on each mountain proclaiming blessings from Mount Ebal and curses from Mount Gerizim. But they're then instructed, now that we're in the land, it's time to begin building an altar, a more permanent place for worship and sacrifice to occur, because they've at least taken over portion of the land at this point. So Joshua says, okay, this is what we're going to do. And so they, they build this altar. And listen again, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. In, in other words, that that this was not something that's fashioned by men. It was fashioned by God because he fashioned the stones in that shape. So they had to choose these things carefully and go through them and fit all the pieces together in order to make this altar. Um, because it's not an offering. It's not It's not craftsmanship that matters here. It's something totally different. It, it, it's the eye and spotting it and seeing the pattern that God has created in these stones and then fitting those together into the altar. And so they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he, Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. There's an old tradition that priests write their own uh, books. They, They write their own scrolls. And it still goes on today that they're they're required to do this. Kings, for instance, were also required to do that within the system. Um, that they, in order that they could sort of appropriate the covenant for themselves. And so the teachers of the law, all those people made their own scrolls of the law, but kings also did. Now, we don't know that that custom was always kept, but it, but it was intended to press in the law to those who would rule over God's people. So Joshua 
writes a copy of the law. He's taking Moses's place, so it's now his responsibility to take control of the law, to take responsibility for the law. So he does so by writing it out, proving then that he knows the law and made no changes to what was handed down. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read through all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So this tradition of Israel's leaders writing out a scroll of the law and then reciting it, it, it and the, it, it, the tradition became that when they wrote it out, there were a group of scribes who had to then go back and, and proof check it. So they wanted to make sure that it was exactly the way that it was intended, and therefore that, that's passed down from generation to generation to generation. And all who would interpret the law then are responsible for having written out one of these scrolls and having it proof-texted by um, some other scribes in order to make sure that they knew exactly what the law was, that, that, that it was an important thing to pass along. It would be sort of like having presidents, for instance, or, or lawmakers write out copies of the Constitution. That might be a good plan, actually. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's exactly what it is, because the law functions as the Constitution of the people, because it's the way they keep covenant with God. They know that he's going to be faithful to them, and the way in which they can be faithful to him is by keeping the law. But the first step in keeping the law is knowing the law, and that's exactly what happens here. So Joshua becomes not just the military leader of the people here. He's also becoming the spiritual leader of the nation in taking Moses' place. In the gospel today, so remember last night, yesterday, Jesus had been arrested. He had been arrested in the garden and taken away. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Remember that the, the ones who came out with clubs and weapons to arrest him were sent by the high priest and the elders. They were sent by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council over Israel. So they lead him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. Remember that, that we see at the end of yesterday's lesson, they all fled. So here, Peter's following at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And, and what that means is to see how this would end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. What's interesting, that they're seeking false testimony that they might put him to death. They knew they didn't have any true testimony for which they could put him to death, and so they're seeking false testimony. So they're bringing in lying witnesses. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least, or at last, two came forward and said, the man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, that's not exactly the right quote. That's not what he had said. He says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He didn't say, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And we also know what he meant by that. He didn't mean the temple as in the building that was in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. And, and the disciples, at, at least 
by the time the Gospels were written, understood that completely, what he was talking about, that the real temple of God, where God dwelt, was his body, Jesus' body. Now it's our body. That's the reason Paul tells the Corinthians that your body is a temple for the Holy Spirit, because the the Holy Spirit resides in you, and so you've got to be careful about how you treat your body and what you do with it. So the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make to Jesus? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In other words, things are about to change. When he says, are you the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus' response is, you have said so. In other words, yes, you said it. But I tell you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So those are two separate things. You'll see him seated at the right hand, and then you'll see him coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What's your judgment? Well, they all knew exactly what they were supposed to say. They got him to say what they wanted him to say. They got him to testify out of his own mouth that he claims equality with God, claims to be the Son of God, and now they can pronounce the sentence, and so they answered, he deserves death. So you can see this uproar that's been created here, and, and now they, what they're saying is the blasphemy is that he claims to be the Son of God, and they don't believe it. That is the blasphemy. Jesus didn't commit blasphemy. He committed blasphemy in their ears and their eyes because he said something they didn't like and they didn't believe. It's true, therefore, it's not blasphemy. But they've already made up their minds, and so they've already decided that he is committing blasphemy if he he believes himself to be the, um, the Christ, the Son of God, then if he says that, then he will have committed blasphemy, period, end of sentence. They've already made that decision because they'd already made the decision that he was not. Well, the resurrection proves it all wrong, and it proves that that their charge here of blasphemy can't stand. And so he deserves death. If you commit blasphemy under Jewish law, then you could say, okay, he deserves death because he claims equality with God. But the problem is, They don't get to carry out the death sentence. That's not up to them. They're under Roman authority, and the Romans didn't give the Jews the authority and the power to to execute a death sentence. So they have to go to Rome to carry out the sentencing phase of this thing. Had they had their own power in the land, were they not under Roman authority, then they would have been able to carry out the death penalty themselves. Now, it it seems like it was incredibly rare that anybody ever uh, was executed under these laws. There were multiple laws that could allow someone to be um, executed, but they did everything they could to preserve life. They were aware that this prohibition against taking innocent life required a very high bar in order to be able to, to actually dole out the death sentence. But here, they are so convinced of this, and they need to get rid of him because it's causing them too much heartburn. So they've decided that he's going to get death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Well, we know he could have done that. (laughs) It would have been absolutely possible for him to do that. And so as I mentioned the other day, this is, I believe, the, the things that Jesus wanted 
he pr- when he was praying in the garden to avoid it, I believe it was more this than death. Because death, compared to, to getting through this without committing sin, is easier, actually. And if you get there to that point without having committed sin, then, then he is truly the Messiah. And so it, it's the trick, the difficult part, is this next part right here. All the stuff that happens from this point forward, Jesus has to navigate perfectly without sin, without anger, without, you know, all the other things that could have happened. You know, he could have prophesied and said, this is who it is. He could have done those signs. He could have come down from the cross, like they said. But the problem is the work had to be finished on the cross. And so the temptation continually presented to him is to show some alternative sign here. And yet... He perseveres in to the end, and because he did, we have life and we have hope. Paul is, is continuing his discussion from yesterday about the people who esteem one day over another or those who eat meat and those who don't eat meat, and, and he, he considers those people to be the weaker brothers. And here he says, don't, less, don't pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block of hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So I can remember back in the day that that when I was in seminary, actually, I had a classmate who had um, some um, Native American worship kind of items in their home. They had served on on a reservation um, for a season of time before coming to seminary, and and I I admired this person very much for that, but they had some uh, items in their home that other members of my class found to be uh, troublesome and problematic because they were um, worship items, and th- it didn't bother the person who had them. And, and I believe that in that instance, um, while those things can be problematic and, and it would be better not to have those things, I understood why they did. They were mementos of the time that they spent among the Native American tribe in, in, where they had served. And so it, while it would be a problem for me, um, because those things, but I know an idol is not really anything, but I still think it's a bad practice to keep it. But, but I didn't judge the person who had them because I understood the reason that they did it, and I knew that they were not worshiping those things. So he, he said, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. But by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, now is Paul suggesting here that the, quote, weaker brother, that their sensibilities should control our lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year? And I, I think the answer is clearly no, that that's not at all what Paul is suggesting here, because Paul did... Paul ate with Gentiles, and he ate the things Gentiles ate, in spite of the fact that there were those in the church who objected to that practice. And, and it was a problem for some of those uh, brothers that he did this, and he, and he would get angry with them in some of his writings, and we see this same thing. It, it, he could say, well, then everybody should be circumcised, but he didn't. And so Paul is, is just saying, be, you know, be respectful of your the weaker brother, you know, that, that if you're with them, then abstain. But, he, but he's not giving general principles for let the weaker brother's sensibilities rule your entire life. 
You know, it's just a matter of being careful and, and being wise and not doing anything to offend your brother. There may be a reason that person's sensibilities are, are the way they are. I had somebody come to me in, in Pauly's Island one time and, and say, you know, we really like your church. We would really um, like to join, but the problem is we're both recovering alcoholics, and you use wine for um, communion. Therefore, that's a problem for me because it's a temptation. I can, I can smell it. It's, I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. And I had to say, you know, I, I, I won't really run this up the flagpole because it's who we are. And, and you don't get to come in and change who we are. I'm, I'm sorry, because you seem like very nice people, but that's not the way it works. You, you don't get to come in and control this congregation because of a problem that you have. You know, there are plenty of other options where you can go and, and not have this problem. So it, it's that kind of issue. We have to think through these things. Paul's clearly not saying, let other people completely control your life. Because I can just, my conscience could be seared by this, that, and the other thing that are not sinful at all. And, and oh, I don't like, you know, I don't like asparagus, maybe. I don't know that I like asparagus, but I don't like asparagus, therefore nobody should eat asparagus. You know, it's, it's, that, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He, he's just saying, love your brother enough not to offend them. <clears throat> so whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is, the, and what he means there is, is that that don't fuss at your brother and say, well, that's that's not unclean. I can certainly have that. If the brother thinks you can't, he's saying just be sensitive to your brothers. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you're not convinced it's the right thing, then for you to do that is sin. But it doesn't matter if I, if I do it, if I'm convinced that it's not sin, but that, however, <laughs> he's speaking about eating and drinking here. It's not a matter of things that are scriptural and saying, well, I don't think that's sin for me, therefore I can do it. No, if there's a scriptural prohibition against it, it's sin. It, that's a period, end of sentence, full stop kind of statement. But things that are, that are um, inessential, things that are not defined as sin, are, are things that, that we have liberty in. And it's important to understand how much liberty we have. There are only a relatively few things that are prohibited to us. But in those prohibitions, we need to abide by those prohibitions. In everything else, we have liberty. And it's important to exercise that Christian liberty in such a way that it doesn't cause your brother to sin or stumble, or your sister. And it's, it's important for us to be able to do that. And that's the reason it's important for us to actually know the Word of God. Because then we can defend ourselves, and we can stand strong in the liberty we know we have. But we can also know what is prohibited to us. It, it, it's, it's constantly important, but, it, but it's equally important that we recognize that, that Jesus is the Son of God and that his sacrifice on the cross is the answer for sin. And therefore, while we can have liberty, we can circumscribe our own liberty for the sake of another 
but we can also know that we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, righteous, who pleads for us. So we have an answer in these situations. But it's, it's always best for us to do everything out of love.